God, in this place, we are just overwhelmed and grateful for your grace and your love towards us. Thank you for the privilege it is to worship you, to sing to you, to honor you, God. And I pray, God, that in this place and in this time and throughout our lives, Lord, that our lives would honor you, would glorify you, God, that people would see the way that we live and see the way that we go about our days and that, God, you would be on display. Not us, not our own agendas, not our own preferences, but Jesus, you would just shine brightly through all of us. So Jesus, help us to that end. Holy Spirit, come speak to us as we open up the scriptures, as you speak to us. God, may we have ears to ear and what you would have to say to us this morning. We love you. We thank you. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Good morning, everybody. Welcome. Um, if we haven't gotten the chance to meet yet, my name is Aaron. Uh, I have the privilege of being a part of the team here at Wellspring. So good to have you this morning. If you're joining us online, thank you for taking the time to worship with us this morning. Um, and just wanted to start off this morning by just saying happy Father's Day to all you dads in the room. I just want to just honor you and thank you. Just the, it was funny this morning we were, I was like, Tony, you should do the Father's Day thing so not, because I knew I was going to do, do this and choke up. But just want to honor you dads and just recognize that being a father and being a dad is both such a great privilege and it's also a ton of responsibility and a ton of fun as well. I know for myself, getting to be a dad to Sienna and Kaysen is one of the, the deepest joys of my life and just really appreciate and just uh, honor you dads and for the work that you do in our lives and our community. So happy Father's Day to you. I hope you enjoy uh, your day today. Uh, for the time this morning, we are actually going to be in Ruth chapter 4. We're going to be finishing our series uh, through the book of Ruth. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Ruth chapter 4. We'll have the verses up on the screen. Next week, just so you know, we're going to be resuming our study through the book of 1 Corinthians. So we have that to look forward to. Uh, but today we're going to be in Ruth uh, chapter 4. Now as we sort of come to Ruth 4, it's one of those interesting sort of passages. For me, it's, it's been one of my more favorite passages to get the chance to study and look at because the ending of the book of Ruth, to me, kind of reminds me of, you know those endings to those kind of really interesting and really twisty, turny type movies where the ending sort of highlights and gives like, whoa, totally did not see that coming. And the ending sort of re-highlights or recasts like this whole new meaning on the rest of the movie, like an M. Night Shyamalan type movie, right, where you come to the ending of the movie and you go, whoa, because of that ending, now I got to go back and re-watch the whole entire thing. And there's this whole new way to look at the movie that you just sort of watched. And Ruth chapter 4 sort of functions like that, especially towards the end. It has nothing on M. Night Shyamalan, but it's still a, it's a fabulous ending nonetheless. Now, to begin our time, just to sort of recap where we've been so far, right? As the story begins, Ruth and Naomi kind of are starting off in this place of poverty and destitution. They've experienced famine. They've experienced death. And by the time we get to Ruth chapter 2, it just so happens 
that Ruth is gleaning in the field of Boaz, who is this upstanding man who honors God, who honors the ways of the scriptures, and Boaz shows kindness and favor to Ruth. But as things progress, it almost seems like things really aren't progressing sort of maybe fast enough. And Naomi and Ruth kind of come up with this plan to sort of make Ruth's intentions just very obvious and known to Boaz. That Ruth and Naomi want to be a part of Boaz's family because Boaz is a, quote, kinsman redeemer. Someone who has the ability and the right to kind of take Ruth and Naomi into his own family and to sort of provide rescue and redemption to them. But there's a twist, though. At the end of chapter 3, we find out that there's actually a closer kinsman on the scene. And Boaz sort of kind of lets Ruth know that, hey, we got to kind of hang tight and see what's going to happen with this unnamed redeemer. What is he going to do? Is he going to step up to the plate or not? And that's sort of where we left off last week at the end of Ruth chapter 3, Boaz sort of letting Ruth know what was going to happen. And so as we look at the text this morning, we're going to look at it in three acts, kind of like we've done previously through these, this series here in Ruth. And I want to start with Act 1 of chapter 4 here, starting in verse 1. The text says this. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by, or maybe your translations say, just so happened to come by. It's very similar back in chapter 2 where Ruth, chapter 2 says, Ruth just so happened to be gleaning in the field of Boaz. And very similarly, it just so happened, and we know as followers of Jesus that God is orchestrating these events, that it just so happened that this unnamed redeemer happens to walk by in verse 1. And so Boaz says to this, this person, turn aside, friend, and sit down. And he turned aside and sat down. Now, what's really interesting here is that when Boaz says that phrase there in verse 1, turn aside, friend, it's a Hebrew idiom that simply means Mr. So-and-so. And as this man, this unnamed redeemer, is approaching Boaz in front of the city gate, it's almost like Boaz is in one of those moments, I don't know if you've ever been here, where someone's approaching you and you know, you're, you know that you're supposed to know their name. And it's like on the tip of your tongue, is that John or Jake or like, what's that guy's name? And then you just go, hey, dude, what's up? Or hey, bro, good to see you. And it's almost like Boaz is in kind of one of those moments. Like, I I know I'm supposed to know your name. I mean, think about it. It's a family relative, right? But it's a distant family relative, perhaps, and he doesn't know his name. But even on a more sort of serious note, kind of deeper still, there's actually something really profound here. And it's this. That throughout the Old Testament, names mean a lot. Names signify something of great importance. And to not have a name sort of kind of reveals and shows the character of that person. Think about even in the book of Exodus, the Pharaoh, that's not actually a name, that's a title. And that kind of reveals kind of the fact that Pharaoh's not ever given a name, sort of just kind of the, the hideousness of the character of the Pharaoh. Or you fast forward to the New Testament. Luke chapter 16, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man is never given a name, but Lazarus is. And throughout the Old Testament, being named is is synonymous oftentimes with calling and destiny and blessing. Think of Abraham being changed, his name being changed from Abram to Abraham. And that through God's provision and God's work that God was going to give Abraham a name and be a blessing to all the nations. And here as we look at Ruth chapter 1, Mr. So-and-so, this unnamed man, we're kind of given a clue as to sort of the character of this man. We begin to wonder and question, hey, this might not be the most upstanding man 
contrary to Boaz, who is a man of noble character. And so as the passage continues in verse 2, he, Boaz, took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down and he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of, the, of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it. And Mr. So-and-so says, I will redeem it. Now, let's pause right there for a second. Think about what's happening here. I mean, first off, Boaz has just given this, this Mr. So-and-so, like the offer of the century, just kind of given it to him on a golden platter, if you will. I mean, think about it. If you're Mr. So-and-so at this point, at this point in sort of Boaz's telling of, of the deal here, all Mr. So-and-so has to do is take Naomi, who's past child-rearing age, and care for her for a bit, and, and Mr. So-and-so in return gets all of this land. Gets all of this land, and think about it. In that culture, land means everything. Land is this opportunity to grow crops, to grow your business, to grow your household, and he gets to pass that inheritance on to his own children. And so this is a pretty sweet deal for Mr. So-and-so up until this point. And that's why he says at the end of verse 4 there, okay, I will redeem it. But think about another aspect of the story. What if you're Naomi or Ruth at this point? I mean, what's going through your head? I mean, there's been all of this anticipation and all of this hope and desire that Boaz would be the one to redeem you. And here Boaz is like here in the city gate in front of the presence of these elders and saying, hey, Mr. So-and-so, you actually have the right to do this. And you're Ruth and Naomi, we don't know for sure, but I just imagine, what would their reaction be like? What's going through their head? Like, Boaz, what are you doing? How could you, why are you doing this? I mean, you, Mr. So-and-so, just let him, you know, throw him off to the side. You have the, you, you, Boaz, you come and redeem us. But I think this actually speaks to something really important and profound. And it reveals the character of Boaz here. That Boaz, he honors the process, he honors what the scriptures say in regards to kinsmen redeemers. He honors what the process is to be all about. He doesn't take the shortcut. He doesn't say the ends justify the means. He doesn't kind of do what he wants and because he thinks it's right in his own eyes. Remember, the book of Ruth happens during the time of the judges. In the days when the judges ruled, Ruth chapter 1 verse 1. And we know from the rest of scripture that the time of the judges was a time when everyone was doing right in their own eyes, according to the book of Judges. But here we see this small glimpse into one character, Boaz, who's not just doing right in his own eyes, but is doing what is right in God's eyes. And it reveals something about the character of this man, Boaz, as he is doing it the right way, not just to sort of get his own agenda, not to just achieve what he wants. But then I love what Bo how Boaz is approaching this, verse 5. Because Boaz knows exactly what he's doing. Because Boaz says, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. 
Now, I don't think Boaz is sort of being sly here, but there is this aspect where Boaz is like, hey, there's actually one more part to this. There's more. There's Ruth the Moabite. You know Moabites, if you are familiar with the Old Testament, Moabites have this very checkered past in Israel's history. Just even their origins from the book of Genesis and from the book of Numbers, there was a scene where there was Moabite women who seduced Israelite men. Yeah, Moabites. And so, hey, Mr. So-and-so, there's Ruth the Moabite that's actually part of this deal as well. And when Mr. So-and-so recognizes, well, hey, now I have to take care of Ruth, who is of childbearing age, which means that he would be responsible, more than likely, for providing an heir, providing a son. And now that inheritance doesn't just get to go to his kids, but also would need to go to the son that he would have with Ruth. And at that point, he says in the text, I don't want to ruin my inheritance. I'm out. Boaz, it's, a, it's you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bow out here. Boaz, you now have the right to redeem. It's almost kind of like the fine print a little bit. I mean, have you ever had an experience with fine print before? You know, it often doesn't, you know, go well. I kind of had a, a, an experience similar to that. Uh, recently, we were getting some of the stuff ready for the live stream here, and there was a cable that I had to run under the basement to hook up to the TV downstairs. And it's this super long cable, and I'm crawling down here underneath the sanctuary, and it's coming out the other end here where the basement is, where the TV. And I get to the point where, like, I'm almost done with it, I'm going to stick the cord into the TV, and there's this little note on the end of the cable that says, one directional. And it's this 150-foot cable where all I had to do was just pay attention to the instructions, and there's a part of me that's like, instructions are more like suggestions. And so I had to redo the whole entire thing, right? You know, and the point being, it's like paying attention to the fine print is actually really important in life. And for this man, as Boaz is sort of telling what's going to happen here, Mr. So-and-so sees the fine print, if you will, and it's like, I'm out. I'm done. And so then verse 7 sort of gives this synopsis of what, what this, how this agreement went down. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, that one would drew, draw off his sandal and give it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Now what's being referred to here is something from the book of Leviticus. I won't go into too much detail, but the basic idea is that when a contract was made, especially in regards to land, it was a very simple process of not just saying, hey, you have the right to this land, but by enacting it with this symbol of taking off one sandal and kind of giving it to the other party. It was a way of basically saying, you now have the right to walk on this piece of land, right? Kind of a very simple way to deal with contracts, right? I mean, contracts today are kind of like this laborious, very detailed sort of process. I remember when we bought our house up in Washington, you know, they, they, they sit you down to like sign the paperwork for a house and it's like this mountain of paperwork and they put these little post-it notes in there and they're like, hey, sign here, but if you want, you can read the rest of the stuff as well. And you're like, well, I'm basically signing 30 years of my life away here, so I better like read through all this and work through all the details and not just sign, you know, where the post-it notes are. Wouldn't it be just much simpler to just say like, you know, here, here's my Birkenstock or here's my, you know, shoe and then kind of part ways or whatever. You know, but what's happening here is that this is just a very simple way of initiating a sort of formal contract in this day. And so Boaz comes to this point now where he now recognizes that the deal is in, is, in, is in his favor now. That he's now sort of acquired the right, by the right means, to be the one that will be the kinsman redeemer for both Ruth and Naomi. 
And so then as verse 9 comes onto the scene, this is kind of like that celebratory scene in a movie where it's like the Rocky music is playing in the background and everyone's sort of getting amped up and there's this celebration type moment. Boaz in verse 9 says to the elders, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have brought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses to this day. And from Ruth's perspective, her journey has just done this complete 180. From the very first chapter of the book of Ruth, Ruth is referred to a Moabite. She's a foreigner. She's an exile. She's someone who's on the outside. And as the story progresses, in Ruth chapter 2, she's called a foreigner. In Ruth chapter 2, again, she's called a slave. In Ruth chapter 3, she's called a servant longing for marriage. But here in Ruth chapter 4, she's finally referred to the wife of Boaz. And to see this journey that God has taken Ruth on, where now the outsider is now a part of the family of Israel. And not just any outsider, a Moabite is now a part of the family of Israel. And that she has been one that was once far off has now been brought near. Why? Because Boaz had the resolve and the resources and the commitment and counts the cost to say, you know what? I want to bring Ruth into my life. I want to say yes to the outsider. I want to say yes to the one that is poor and destitute and is without resources. And I will care for that one, even if it means it kind of messes up my inheritance or whatever the case might have been for Mr. So-and-so. But then look how just the, the blessing that now gets prayed over Ruth in verse 11. Just hear just the, the joyousness in these verses, verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in a pathor and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Now, a couple things just to point out real quickly here. When these people are praying this blessing over Ruth, and they're saying, may your house, may your family be like the house of Rachel and Leah. They're referring back to the book of Genesis. Or Rachel and Leah, or Leah, Rachel and Leah were, not Leah, I always do the Star Wars. It's not, <laughs> Rachel and Leah from the book of Genesis, right, were the two sort of mothers of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they're saying, may your household, may your family be like the mothers who gave birth to the 12 tribes of Israel. And then they go on to say, may your family line be like the, the family line of Tamar, who bore Perez to, to, to the husband Judah. Which if you, have, if you have time this afternoon, go back and read Genesis chapter 38. You get extra credit for reading that. It's this crazy story, but the, the main idea in parallel to, with Ruth is that Tamar was also a foreigner. Tamar was also a foreigner, and Tamar is brought into the family of Israel and is part of continuing on the family line of Judah. Now, what's significant about that is the family line of Judah would be the, the family line that, would, that the Messiah would come from, that Jesus himself would come from. And in a very similar way, these people are praying this blessing, saying, may your family, Ruth, be like the 12 tribes of Israel with fruitfulness and blessing poured out. And may you, like the foreigner Tamar, who continued on the family line of Judah, may you be like that as well. Now, as the story continues, though, it's super, super interesting what happens next. 
As we get to scene two, we begin to sort of see this ending kind of highlight back on the rest of the story. So we have verse 13 where Ruth, or where now Boaz and Ruth will officially get married. And it says, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, there's this, now this other prayer and blessing over Naomi now. And these women say, blessed be Yahweh who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is of more to you than seven sons has given you, has given birth to him. Now, just a couple things I want to point out here. In verse 13, you think about it, is the one verse that talks about, now here's Ruth and Boaz, they're married, and they have a son. And it's interesting because we've had this whole book sort of with anticipation and hope and longing of like, will, Bo- Roaz, will Boaz and Ruth come together? Will they get married? Will they be able to have a family together? And then you just get one verse. You know, nine months later, they, had a ba- they, they got married and had a baby. And are like, whoa, okay. After all of this text on their relationship, I mean, you have a whole chapter devoted to, you know, one day in the fields in chapter two. You have a whole chapter devoted to this evening kind of, that's kind of has this kind of weird sort of character to it in Ruth chapter three of what's happening with Ruth and Boaz at the threshing floor. And then you just get one verse on they had a son and they were married. Like, why not tell us more about that? What's going on there? And then, what's on top of that, what's, what else is interesting, is that the, as these women are praying this blessing in four, verses 14 and following, they're talking about this Redeemer, but it's the only time in the whole Bible where the Redeemer that they are, being, that they are speaking of is not an adult male. They're talking about this child as a Redeemer. All the pronouns here, they're not referring to Boaz as being the Redeemer. They're referring to this descendant as being the redeemer. Now, what's going on there? What's what's happening there? I mean, even as the story closes, so to speak, verse 16, you kind of have like this happy ending where Naomi takes the child and laid him in her lap and cared for him. And it's like, okay, happy ending. We can go home now, right? Right? It's like, here's grandma holding the baby, and it's like you're watching the end of a movie, and the, the scene sort of pans to here's Na- grandma Naomi holding this little baby, and the credits begin to roll, and we're all emotional, and we're excited, and we're happy. Like, this has been just a beautiful story of redemption. Here's the family together now, and it's just a beautiful, happy ending. It's like, okay, we can go home now. There, there's resolution to the story, Right? And you're maybe sitting there in the movie theater or or whatever, and you're packing up your things, you're getting ready to leave, and the credits begin to roll. But then, have you ever been in some of those movies where as the credits begin to roll, there's like, the scene comes back, and then like, oh wait, there's more. There's more that the the movie wants to to say to you and and kind of tell you about. And there's something similar that's happening here. This is kind of like the M. Night Shyamalan ending here where the ending at the end is going to actually really paint and highlight what really was happening in the book of Ruth this whole time. Verse 17. The woman living there said, Naomi has had a son, and they named him Oved. Oved was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David. Hmm. 
That's how you're going to end the story. With a genealogy. I mean, that's how, we're, that's how we end stories, right? With family lineages? What's going on here? And think about it for a second. Think about how the story start, started. In Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, right? A time of chaos, a time of uncertainty, a time of when everyone was doing right in their own eyes. And you get this kind of little story within that bigger story of here's Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. Everyday people going about their everyday lives. And what the, the story of Ruth is telling us is it's not just giving us video camera footage of like a cute love story that happened thousands of years ago. The author of the book of Ruth is telling us through the ordinary, everyday acts of kindness and faithfulness that might have seemed insignificant or not all that important, God was weaving together a beautiful story of redemption that would eventually lead in the moment of chaos to Israel's greatest king, King David. I mean, if you're Ruth and and Naomi in chapter 1, who would have seen that coming? Who would have seen God at work in that way when there's famine in the land and when there's death in your life? That God is weaving together these small, insignificant, ordinary, everyday acts to bring about King David and his family line. And all of a sudden we begin to see this story is more than just a cute romantic story that happened thousands of years ago. It's about something much bigger. And something more profound, which I want to highlight here as we look at the last scene, scene three. Now, just full-on warning here. Scene three is just straight up an entire genealogy, which is like our favorite part of the Bible to read, right? We love those parts. And your one-year Bible reading plan, you just, you read those with so much detail. I know you do. But here we go. I love this stuff, by the way. There's There's a lot here, so bear with me. Verse 18. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered, fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered, fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Now, a couple minutes here, I really want to unpack this genealogy because there is something intentional as to why the author of the book of Ruth ends this story with this particular genealogy. And if we just kind of skip over this genealogy, I think we miss the profoundness of what the book of Ruth is trying to communicate to us, all right? So a couple of things. First thing, notice that this genealogy is a 10-generation genealogy. There's 10 sort of family lines throughout this genealogy. And even within the book of Ruth itself, there's significance there. Because if, you're, if you remember all the way back to Ruth chapter 1, we're told in Ruth chapter 1 that there was 10 years of famine and death. And here the story ends with 10 generations of family and life and blessing. And if you want to go even back further to the book of Deuteronomy, there's a law in the book of Deuteronomy that says that a Moabite is not allowed to enter the assembly of Israel until the 10th generation. And here we have, within this 10 generation, Ruth the Moabite is already included. Now that's one level. Here, let's go another level deeper with this. Not only is this generational or this uh, genealogy have significance within the book of Ruth itself, but also it's pointing us both backward and forward. Backward to the book of Genesis and forward to the book of Matthew. Let's take those two in turn. First, backward to the book of Genesis. That phrase in verse 18, now these are the generations of, appears 10 times in the book of Genesis to trace a particular genealogy, but one genealogy in particular. 
And each time that that phrase appears in the book of Genesis, those 10 times, it's tracing the family line from Adam and Eve, the seed of the woman, which would eventually become the family line through Abraham, through the tribe of Judah, which we know would become the family line of Jesus himself. 10 times over, in the book of Genesis, that phrase, now these are the generations of, and it's like the book of Ruth, the author of the book of Ruth is saying, remember God's faithfulness in the past? Remember the work that God was doing in the past in the book of Genesis, caring for and shepherding and bringing along that family line to bring about the seed of the womb, the, womb, the, the seed that would eventually crush the head of the serpent from Genesis three. That this is what God is doing in the time that the judges ruled in a time that's full of upheaval and uncertainty and chaos, when people are just doing whatever is right in their own eyes. Remember the faithfulness of God in the past. Remember the goodness of God in the past and see his faithfulness through those generations that God is being faithful in the present and that God will continue to be faithful in the future. And even on a, a deeper level still, whenever we, when we see that there's this 10-person genealogy, this is actually one of only three 10-person genealogies in the entire Bible. There's only three. The first one is in Genesis chapter 5, which traces the genealogy from Adam to Noah. The second one is in Genesis chapter 11 that traces Noah's generation all the way to Abraham. And here in Ruth chapter 4, we have the fourth 10-person genealogy tracing all the way through to the person of David. And when you think about the characters that end each of those 10-person genealogies, they all were significant characters at a new moment in God's redemptive history, a new beginning on the horizon. You think of Noah, post-flood, a new beginning that was gonna take place through the person of Noah. You think of Abraham, after the Tower of Babel, God was gonna bring about a new work through the family of Abraham through his genealogy, through his seed. And you come to the time of King David where God was now going to begin a new work through the kings of Israel, through the family of David, which would eventually we know now lead to Jesus himself. I like how one Jewish scholar, see, a lot of the, the Jewish ways of reading these genealogies, they really, they really pick up on the significance of this. And one Jewish rabbi points this out, and he says this. The list of the ancestors in Ruth was written as a 10-generation list to evoke the earlier lists in Genesis and also to indicate that here a new epoch or here a new time was beginning, the time or the epoch of the Davidic monarchy. Just as Noah began the post-flood world and Abraham, the Israelite people, in a new world divided into nations, David began the dynasty that will ultimately lead to the messianic times under the new son of David that this is what God has been doing all along through what might have seemed like seemingly insignificant details in the book of Ruth, through ordinary characters, through ordinary sort of events, that God was weaving his beautiful plan of redemption. But not only is Ruth chapter four, this genealogy asking us to look back, it's also, as I've alluded to, also directly asking us to look forward. Because the gospel writer Matthew has essentially taken this sort of section here at the end of the book of Ruth and copied it, pasted straight into Matthew chapter 1. And if we were to turn to Matthew chapter 1, we would see that the New Testament begins with a genealogy. Begins with a genealogy that traces from Abraham all the way to Jesus himself. And right in the middle of that is here this genealogy from the book of Ruth. And why is that significant? 
Well, because what, what Matthew is telling us, what Ruth is telling us, is that what God has been doing all along has been making a way, has been faithful to his covenant plan, to his people, to bring about the Savior that we all long for. That what God has been up to behind the scenes, when it doesn't seem like God is working, when it doesn't seem like God is present, when it doesn't seem like you know, people are even doing what's right anymore, and the world's falling apart, Ruth chapter 4 and connecting it with Matthew chapter 1 reminds us, you know what? God is faithful throughout all the generations. And that the past faithfulness of God is to bring us hope for the future. Is to bring us a sense of expectation and longing that God, what you did in the past, may you do that again, not only in my generation, but for generations to come. And as we think about this, as we kind of look at what is this story mean for us today? How does this ending that kind of re-highlights the rest of the book of Ruth and now gives us sort of a fresh window into, okay, this is what the book of Ruth has been all about all along. It wasn't just about Ruth and Boaz. It was about God's bigger plan and God's work in the world. What does this then say for us in our everyday lives? And I just want to kind of close with sort of two basic thoughts as we think about how does this sort of hit the ground for us today? Two things. I want to first talk about God's faithfulness and then secondly, God's story. First, God's faithfulness. Now, I've kind of already alluded to this, but it's this really crucial idea to understand in the book of Ruth. That when we're reading the story of Ruth, it's not just video camera footage of a cute love story from the distant past. Rather, it's a way for us to see in the midst of everyday moments, farming, going to work, being with family, having conversations, that God is present and God is faithful. And even in particular, through moments of tragedy, God is faithful. Think about how the story starts. Again, Ruth chapter one, there's famine and there's death. And through that tragedy, God's faithfulness abounds and just leaps off the pages. And I know for many of us in this room today, we might find ourselves in a moment of pain, of uncertainty, and even downright tragedy. God, where are you? And we might not be at a moment where it's Ruth chapter four for us, where it's all bow ties and rainbows and everything's a happy ending. We might still be in Ruth chapter one, where it still feels like there's famine and there's death and there's no hope. And perhaps the way the book of Ruth might wanna speak to you through God's spirit is to say that God is and will continue to be faithful even in those moments that God is faithful to bring about his redemption, that we can say like Job in the midst of tragedy, Job 19, for that I know that my redeemer lives and on the last day he will stand upon the earth. And though my flesh may fail, my eyes yearn within me to see him for I know that my redeemer lives. And may the book of Ruth just be this resounding echo to, for us to understand that God is plotting for our good that God is faithful in the midst of tragedy and he's also faithful, secondly, through, again, ordinary acts of faithfulness. I really want to double down on this for a moment to think about how God is faithful. We throw that phrase around all the time, God is faithful, God is faithful. But the book of Ruth is showing us, in particular, that God is oftentimes faithful through small, ordinary, everyday acts from the way that Boaz runs his business with integrity, from the way that Ruth shows commitment and loyalty 
when it would have been easier to just say, I'm going to do what's easy for myself and look out for myself. Through Boaz doing what's right in the beginning of Ruth chapter 4, going about the process in the right way. God is faithful through these small acts of faithfulness on the part of his own people. And perhaps maybe the encouragement for us today is to understand and see that in our lives, in our everyday lives, that God is faithful perhaps through the community of people that he has surrounded us with, the relationships that he has brought into our lives, that God wants to show his faithfulness through you and through me at times. And what a beautiful invitation that is to to step into and to say, God, you're inviting me to be a part of your work. You're inviting me to be a part of your plan of redemption through small acts of faithfulness. But I think there's even more that goes on because I think I want to, maybe a practical way to look at this, let me put it like this, is to not just agree with the idea that God is faithful, but begin to really ask ourselves and to look for God's faithfulness in our lives. So maybe two questions to kind of sit with this week as we think about this to kind of recognize and understand where is God being faithful in your life. The first question is this. Where have you seen God at work? Maybe in the past week or two weeks. Where have you seen God at work? You know, for for me, and it was really interesting, a couple weeks ago, we were meeting with our well community, and one of the guys in the group kind of had this idea, why don't we just start the night off by talking about where have we seen God at work in the past week? And it was this, one of the most amazing slash just kind of more honest and joy-filled moments that I've had in a long time. And I was really thankful for that that evening because as people were going around sharing kind of, you know, where they have seen God at work, there was both the honesty of like, you know what? It's hard for me to see God at work right now. There's a lot of things in life that are just downright awful. And this is a hard season. And I'm having a hard time with that. And then we started talking about just like some of the small things. Of you know what, we saw God at work. You know, a couple of us kind of ran into each other at, at a park and our kids were playing together. And just to see, because it doesn't happen that often these days, just to see kids play together. And to just see, you know what, the playfulness and the relaxation and the joy that kids have just does wonders to your soul. Because in a moment like this where it's so serious and often sort of downcast and like there's all this gloom in the media and on the news, to see just the innocence of kids running around in the field together, like God's at work there. God's trying to teach us something. That there's reasons to celebrate. There's reasons to be joyful. There's reasons to see that the goodness of God is at work in small and what may seem like insignificant moments. And just sort of doing that exercise as a group, I thought was just one of the most helpful things that we've done as a group, um, through, especially through this kind of shelter-in-place season. And I'm just really thankful for that, for that moment. I keep thinking back on that, like, God, you're at work in these small, insignificant ways. And oftentimes, I just need to be more aware of that. And I need to slow down and take the time to recognize that, God, you are at work even when it doesn't seem like you are. But even kind of building off that, another question to consider. Where does God seem absent? Because there's often two sides to this. And I've kind of alluded to it a little bit. 
But sometimes it's easy to just kind of put on the Christian smile and say, you know, God's at work, everything's amazing, and it often can become fake at times. But think about, and be honest, maybe you're not at a Ruth chapter four moment in the story. Maybe you're still in Ruth chapter one. Maybe you're still maybe in a moment of Ruth chapter two and there's uncertainty and you've seen some progress. There is a little bit of hope, you know, grains being provided and things are maybe headed the right direction but there's still not closure. It's still not the resolution that you're hoping for and and the question becomes, God, where are you? Where does God seem absent? And to be honest with, with that and to make space for that. And so maybe this week, these are just sort of two ways to really hone in on this idea that, God, you are faithful. I just don't want to agree with that as an intellectual idea, but I want to live that out. I want to, I want to slow down and ask these questions. God, where are you at work? Where are you showing yourself? And to also be honest with those moments, God, you're absent here. It, it feels like you're absent here. And I'll, I'm I'm begging you to show up here. I, I need you to show up here. And God, where are you in those moments? And both of those things, both the hope and the honesty, go hand in hand together. I love how Tim Mackey puts it. He says this, Ruth shows us how God is at work in the day-to-day activities of average people. All of the characters face life's normal challenges, death, moving, lack of financial resources, family responsibilities, and find God is weaving a story of redemption out of all of those details. The story encourages us to view our day-to-day lives as part of God's bigger plan in our lives in the world. And that's where I want to talk about this second thing, God's bigger plan, God's story. See, again, I've talked about this, but let me just be abundantly clear. The story of Ruth is not just about Ruth and Boaz. It's about something much bigger. The story of God's unfolding plan of redemption, which ultimately comes about through the person of Jesus. And as we kind of see Jesus throughout the pages of the book of Ruth, we begin to see that Jesus is our redeemer. That this whole story has been pointing us forward, getting us to get our eyes off of ourselves. That the Bible is not just about us, but it is about God and his work in the world. And that God is redeeming a people for himself through the person of Jesus. And that Jesus is our redeemer. That we who were once far off have been brought near by the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that, as Peter says, that we have been redeemed, not with things that are perishable, like silver and gold, but redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. Or Paul writes in Ephesians 1, that we have the redemption, the forgiveness of sins, by his grace which he lavished upon us. And friends, this is what God is up to in the world. That this is what God wants us to see and to recognize in our lives. That we, in a, in a similar way, like Ruth, were once far off and distant, but because of Jesus, we have been brought near. We have been from the outside, now been brought in, brought close because of the work of Jesus. That Jesus became like us, became close to us, became akin to us, a redeemer to us, that we might have life and fellowship in relationship with the living God, our creator. And that, friends, I would just ask you to consider and to not just move past that sort of theological fact, if you will, and don't even think about it as a theological fact, but to understand it, that this is a truth that should penetrate all of our lives. That to recognize that Jesus is our redeemer brings us to the place of humility and gratitude and thankfulness 
and joy that I was not deserving of any of this. That my life is not my own. I've been bought with a price. That Jesus has taken me in, has included you and me, this community together. Not so that we can just feed our own ego or do our own thing or make it about ourselves or improve our own lives, but that we may lay our lives down in response to Jesus. And like Paul, when he says, I'm no longer my own, I've been bought with a price, Paul would also say in another, another place that I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And that my life would radiate the person of Jesus throughout every facet of my life. And that we would come humbly before Jesus and say, Jesus, both with gratitude and with thankfulness, but with also with great humility and dependence, Jesus, we need you. I cannot live this life on my own. I need you. Come, Holy Spirit. And that we would recognize and see the beauty of what God has done in our lives by his grace. You know, as we close, I want to invite the worship team to come up. And as we spend just a few moments reflecting on this story, as we spend a few moments singing about God's goodness and God's grace in our lives, I want to just invite you to have just a moment of honesty with God. That you might, even as we worship and sing, just ask those questions. God, where are you at work and where might you want to see more of God at work? But you wouldn't end there as well. You would also recognize that through the person of Jesus, Jesus has redeemed us. He has forgiven us. He has brought us into his family. Why don't we stand and pray together? Jesus, we're thankful and grateful for the work that you've done in our lives. We're thankful for your redemption, your forgiveness, that we who are far off have been brought near by the precious blood of Jesus. And God, may your grace and your love just penetrate the deepest parts of our being. God, may we just be a people that just exude your grace and your love in our lives. And God, I pray as we go about our lives, you would help us to see that, God, you are faithful. You have been faithful. You will continue to be faithful. And for those of us in this room and watching online, God, that are longing for more of you, that are crying out to you in the depths of their being, God, God, where are you? God, show up. God, I pray that right now you would meet them in a profound way. God, as we draw near to you, God, will you continue to draw near to us this morning? We pray these things in your name. Amen.